All right. Welcome, everybody, to the second episode of Blast from the Past, our interview show where we interview former members of Congress. Today with us, we're honored to have uh, Mr. Lincoln Davis, the former Democratic congressman from Tennessee's 4th Congressional District. Uh, welcome, Mr. Davis. We're happy to have you on. Could you briefly introduce yourself to the viewers? Thanks very much. I'm Lincoln Davis from Tennessee, served the 4th Congressional District of Tennessee from 2003 until 2011. Uh, 24 counties out of 95. Uh, my background is include being a farmer with an agriculture degree, uh, also having served as mayor, state representative, state senator, and then my last uh, term was serving in the U.S. House of Representatives. Have, uh, uh, my wife and I have been married for 57 years. We have five wonderful grandchildren and two of those uh, that we call great-grandchildren, and they have us wrapped around their finger, the two-year-old does. That's wonderful to hear. All right, so I guess we'll get into our first question for you. And uh, this question is for me, and I was wondering, what encouraged you to first get into politics by running for a seat in the Tennessee State House? And on top of that, how did your service in the Tennessee legislature prepare you for the workings of Congress? Well, when you look at what causes a person to run, obviously you look at the circumstances, situations, look at our country, see that there are areas that seem to have less attention. Uh, and as a result of that, I made, I decided not a, as, a, as a youngster, when I was in school, I never saw myself run for public office. I really wanted to work in agriculture and that was going to be my life. But uh, as I became more involved in civic opportunities, uh, basically what was called USJC's, US Junior Chamber of Commerce, uh, I saw what community involvement could do and then ran for a mayor that definitely ran for the state house, state senate, and then uh, ran for uh, the U.S. Congress in 2002. All of that kind of became, was not a strategy, it was not a planned strategy uh, to run for office, but I just felt continually drawn to public service. And that, that's some of the reasons, that those are the reasons basically that I ran for, uh, that I ran for office. Thank you. Uh, Armand, do you want to ask your first uh, question? Yeah, totally. So uh, thank you for doing this again, Congressman Davis. Um, now, when I was uh, researching your background, one of the things that came up was that uh, you were unfortunately the victim of a voter disenfranchisement scheme a couple of years back. And so, you know, as a victim of this voter suppression or disenfranchisement, what do you, what do you think that Democrats in the South and nationwide can do to help combat the erosion of voting rights among people. First, let me give you a history of that. In 2012, uh, when we were going to vote in the primary in February of 2012, when we went into our voting precinct, where I first started voting in 1964, we went to the voting precinct about 6.30 that afternoon, polls closed at 7, we were told that we were not on the list, that we were not registered voters in our home county where I was born and raised, where I attended high school, where I attended elementary school and it was somewhat puzzling and so we both both of us were not allowed to vote uh we later, later found that they had actually transferred our restoration to another county uh the county voting restoration did so it was quite uh it was it was uh, the first time i'd ever missed voting either in the primary or in general election was in 2012 and so i i was extremely disappointed that that could have happened i believe it was basically politics that caused that to happen which is unfortunate as I go back and look at, uh, at, at how, how voting rights, you, you realize a hundred years ago, women got the right to vote in this country. Tennessee was, was the last state to ratify that. Uh, and then 
as we started voting, early voting, we have now 15 days of early voting starting 20 days out from the election. Those were Democrat initiatives. Uh, when you're going to get your driver's license renewed, uh, you're able to actually register to vote. You fill out a form saying, yes, I want to register to vote. And then the, uh, the Tennessee Department of Transportation or Department of Safety will send that application to your local registrar of elections. What Democrats have done over the many years has made it much easier for, uh, for people to vote. Uh, after uh, the, the, the Jim Crow laws, uh, the literacy test that was demanded by many Southern states, the poll tax that was demanded by Southern states, that was all repealed in 1964 and 65, especially 65, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and so what, what I have observed is that Democrats over the years have been the ones who have, who have made it easier for people to vote. And we need to, to realize our history and continue to press that and make, make the public aware of, of, uh, of some of the oppressions that are occurring today, such as a congressman who served in your, in your, who served for your county, was registered in your county, had an office in your county uh, where you could go to, your neighbor was the election coordinator, and you get purged from your, from your voting rolls. That just seems to be like that's a little bit too much for, uh, for that to happen. And so for me, I think that we Democrats have got to continue. I think anyone, not just Democrats, but I think that anyone who loves the Constitution needs to be sure, Republican, Democrat, or Independent, that we make it easier and easier for people to express their views and to express, do that on Election Day. Thank you, Mr. Davis. Uh, so my second question pertains to the Blue Dogs in Congress. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday on the phone because you were a congressional Blue Dog. And my question is, what do you attribute the declining number of congressional moderates in both parties to? And how do you think the Blue Dog should continue to play an important role in setting the Democratic policy agenda? And the Blue Dogs were established for a reason. Uh, they were established basically to be a voice. Uh, a lot of it was for rural America, even though we have folks from New York that are Blue Dog Democrats and California that are Blue Dog Democrats. We're more centrist, more moderate, uh, lending more to the center or maybe a little bit to the right. Uh, I, think, I think what happened uh, in 1994, uh, 92, with the uh, contract with America, when, when, when the gangers received power and was able to get funding uh, to start describing their bumper sticker slogans to the American voter, the things started changing. And then in 2006, uh, after, the, after uh, the Democrats won a majority back from the Republicans, it was been 12 years, uh, I started seeing in my district a lot of folks who were doing a lot of pushback. Uh, 2008, when Obama was elected, it really became very, very, I mean, it was just difficult to have a town hall meeting. Uh, and so the Tea Party became a major player uh, in describing uh, what the American, how the, how the American public started following. And as a result of that, what we started seeing is that a purity among Democrats, for instance, I remember there was a Democrat chairman who, uh, who said it was okay if the Blue Dogs lost then we would be rid of them and they could start doing the things that they always wanted to do. Well, in 2010, they lost the majority after that person made the statement uh, in 2009, 2010. Same thing happened on the Republican side. If you're, not, uh, if, if you're not a Trump loyalist today, if you're not a Tea Party loyalist today, you will be, you will be primaried in your primary. And for people who, who seek holding public office more than they do seek public service, those folks will yield to the demands of the extremes on the right and the left. And I think that's happened both in the Democrat, uh, the Democrat primaries, and in and in the uh, primaries on the Republican side. I often say that uh, the left wing believes the right wing 
is wrong on everything, and the right wing believes the left wing is wrong on everything, and I believe both of them are right. They're both wrong. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. And uh, I do think it's interesting uh, with you relating the history of the Blue Dog Caucus, because you're right, today recently, even though some of the members just lost re-election in the House this time, but um, you had people like Joe Cunningham in South Carolina's first district, which is more suburban. So you're seeing more of a suburban shift for the Blue Dogs rather than the tradition of uh, rural Democrats, which I think is very, very telling of how things have changed since you left Congress. Uh, but Armin, if you wanna ask your second question. Yeah, so you, you brought up the Tea Party and Trump. And uh, so actually I wanted to ask you, so in 2010, uh, Scott Desjardins ended up defeating you for, for re-election amidst a nationwide red surge. And, uh, you know, he has, you know, a ton of scandals that are, you know, very controversial things he's done. And he hasn't really paid a huge electoral price for it at the ballot box. You know, he's won cons consistent terms to re-election. So I was wondering, do you think that presaged Trump in any way uh, about how a controversial person could say and do controversial things and absolutely just not face any real punishment from the electorate for it? I think the Tea Party movement uh, created a lot of great bumper sticker slogans that people believed, for instance, um, but making the bumper sticker pro-life, rationed health care, uh, which apparently we're seeing happening today. So what the Tea Party did uh, and what the Republicans have done and what the far right is able to do is to keep is to keep their message in front of the public, either through the TV stations that are willing to do that, uh, to the Rush Limbaugh, to the talk radio, uh, to conservative blogs, all of those get, they all seem to follow in line with that bumper sticker slogan of the day. Uh, I, and, and, and what happens is that public starts believing that, voters start believing that Democrats are bad people. For instance, in this election cycle, socialism. Uh, I can recall four years ago, basically in 2017, early 2018, when when, when, when the extreme left wing of our party started talking about defunding, uh, about abolishing ICE, which is, you know, protects your borders. And then there was this effort to, uh, uh, to say, you know, Medicare for all, which was not something that a lot of people in the center are looking at. They, I, for instance, want to see everybody have availability to them healthcare. Uh, defund the police. Uh, Democrats have been unable to actually establish a bumper sticker slogan that, 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 that people will, will, will cling to and hang to. The Republicans do a better job of it. And they also have uh, the repetitiveness over and over again. So I do believe that in 2008 and 2009, 2010, after Obama's election, we saw, uh, uh, we saw uh, an, a, 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 I think policies on steroid uh, that convinced the American public that they ought to be, that Democrats are dangerous, for instance, I guarantee there's not a single person who, who has social security today would give that up. There's not a single person who has Medicare today that would give that up. Most of us were able to go to a, to a public school, not a private school. We want to see our children get a good education and our grandchildren get a good education. We wouldn't give those things up. But unfortunately what's happening is that Democrats aren't able to put in a bumper sticker slogan or have, uh, or be able to communicate with the voters of the things that are great for them. If you deal with Social Security and Medicare, you really are rationing people's health. You really are, people really are dying. Uh, and so on the abortion issue, we need to start talking more about whole life. Uh, for seniors, uh, 
how do you help a young lady who's uh, uh, who's uh, who maybe left home, she's in school, uh, meets some guy, and all of a sudden she winds up pregnant. Uh, what options does she have? Maybe to go home and tell her parents I've made a mistake, but there'll be other options. She'll have other options other than just abortion. Uh, uh, and we Democrats, I don't think, are doing enough to talk about whole life instead of just the life issue that Republicans have, have put in front of the public saying, this is the only thing you need to worry about. I'm not sure I answered that question good, but I, I, I could go on. That was, that was, no, that was good. That was perfect. Yeah, it was, it was good. It was exactly Very good. what he was looking for. Uh, what was the point you're about to make? I'm sorry, I, the connection, I, I accidentally cut you off. I apologize. I, I think what we Democrats also, I think what people who, and I would say Democrats, those of us who love America most are not willing to point out to the voters, or we haven't done that, especially the Democrats haven't. Since Richard Nixon was sworn in, there have been 19 Supreme Court justices confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Only four of those have been recommended by a Democratic uh, president, two for Clinton and two for Barack Obama. In essence, they've used this, they've used the Supreme Court as a wedge issue saying, if you don't, if you don't elect Republicans, then the abortion issue and other moral issues that are important to us, uh, will we won't be able to control that. But yet they've never overturned Roe versus Wade. They've never, there's been nothing to go back and repeal it. For instance, my wife who taught school, every morning they would have a moment of silence uh, and then and move on with the class. Uh, we, we Democrats have not been willing to, 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 to get into the weeds like the Republicans have uh, and define their, define their lives. For instance, a Supreme Court has not reversed Roe versus Wade since 1973, and they probably won't. That's not going to happen. I'm sad to say this, but I believe that their only purpose is to use it politically and not to offer any assistance to a, to a young woman who's in distress that finds herself in a situation that she doesn't have any hope in. And as a result of that, the only choice she can do uh, that she sees at the time is maybe to go to, uh, to, to, to a doctor and have an abortion. Uh, this thing about the judges, I think the only thing that we see that that conservative, conservative judges have done is when Citizens United became, uh, uh, the, Citizens United allowed wealthy people to buy an election. And it wouldn't necessarily be their election, it could be whoever's running that will agree to them to do whatever they want them to do. That's another reason we're seeing, uh, we're seeing the difficulties today. I look back to sliced election and see where small donors gave losing sen Senate candidates in two or three different states up to 70 to $80 million when they could use that in areas where the Democrats may have won a Senate seat. Mm -hmm. so it's a very, yeah, I was just sorry. gonna gonna add, that was a very good point about the fundraising Citizens United. Uh, if you don't mind, I was wondering, I was gonna ask my next question uh, just because uh, we wanna make sure we get through the last two questions here. Uh, and I was gonna say, uh, what issues can Democrats still connect with rural voters on? considering your district was mostly rural. And how valuable do you think it is that Democrats in Tennessee and around the country continue to court rural voters, even if rural voters continue to vote for Republicans? Well, first of all, I, when I ran in 2002, that was, uh, that's one of the three times in American history uh, has the incumbent president's party uh, in the off-year election in his first term actually gained seats, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt and then George Bush in 2002. I was one of three 
members of Congress uh, who actually uh, who actually took a seat that was previously held by a Republican. Uh, and I did that by talking about the issues that were important to me and was important to the people that I represented. When I first started running in 2001 for Congress, I did we did a poll to and we identified the issues that I felt was important and the issues that I would be voting on if I was elected to Congress. And, and, and about 87% of those of the voters agreed with the positions that I were taking. We, we, we didn't identify that that was my position. We didn't identify why the poll was being taken. But I felt comfortable I could win in the fourth congressional district, which is very rural. It was the third, third most rural district in America and the fourth uh, lowest income per capita in America out of the 435 congressional seats. So I ran that race talking to people like me uh, and convincing them they should vote for me. I was outspent in, in the primary considerably. Uh, and then in November, we were pretty well equal uh, in spending uh, in the November election. So I, I, th I think that it's extremely important. Rural people are, are just good people. I mean, we go to, you see us in church on Sunday morning. You see us going to ball games with our kids, uh, with our children, our grandchildren. You see us helping each other if someone is, is sick. I mean, rural people have a, have a tremendous amount of character about them. But unfortunately, they seem to be voting just Republican. I watched Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor on the $2,000 just last, just yesterday on, on, on the Senate floor saying that all this $2,000 was for it so that Democrats could report, could, could, uh, could reward their wealthy uh, friends. I mean, when you get to $150,000 for, for a family of two, you don't get it. You don't get to $2,000. So how in the world can he make such a statement and be allowed to make such a statement without at least pointing out to him that $150,000 a year don't make you wealthy. Uh, in many cases, if you look at our country, about 40% of people live in a household that earn less than, 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 than $40,000 a year. Those are the people who are going to be rewarded by this $2,000 uh, uh, by increasing the $600 to $2,000. Wealthy Democrat friends, they all vote for Republicans, those folks earning that kind of income. So how do we get that message? How, how do we create a bumper sticker saying, Mitch is lying. Mitch just told a lie on the Senate floor. It's not worth it because if you earn a million dollars, you don't get to 2,000 bucks. But we aren't able to actually communicate that for some reason to the American voter. Thank you. Uh, and Orman, do you want to ask your last question? Yeah, sure. So uh, leading up to 2008, uh, you notably endorsed Hillary Clinton over Barack Obama. Uh, so I want to ask you, how do you think Barack Obama changed the course of the Democratic Party and how do you think that a hypothetical President Hillary Clinton back in 2009 would have changed the course differently? Well, the reason I endorsed Hillary Clinton, I, I, I met Bill Clinton uh, when he first started running. I really wasn't happy with him. But when I met him and, 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 and the work that he did, I mean, he was a good president. He did some things that I don't agree with. As a matter of fact, some things I'm ashamed of. And I, I really wish I could take him out behind the barn and take a leather strap to his backside for doing that. Uh, I hope that don't get me in trouble. I don't think I'm not saying that in a violent way, but I felt that Hillary Clinton was one of the best prepared people, uh, best prepared persons to run other than Joe Biden this time that we've had in history. So was George Herbert Walker Bush. So I endorsed Hillary Clinton because I thought with Bill Clinton there and, and her winning as the president, that we could see a continuity of, of what all of us had a dream for in America. Uh, my wife was asked one day if she liked Hillary Clinton, and she said, one of her, her good friends, our good friends, and she said, I do, and she said, well, why? She said, well, you know, she's, I'm a teacher, and so she's, she supports education, 
and went on two or three other things. She said, she asked her friend, do you like her? She said, no, I don't. She said, can you tell me why? And she said, well, no, not really. I just don't like her. So, I mean, that, that I endorsed Clinton in 2008 because I felt that, that with Bill Clinton there and the work that was where we balanced the budget and had a surplus, I felt we could see some continuity of that. But now, in, 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 uh, uh, in, and then continue this conversation, I think Barack Obama will go down history as being one of America's great presidents. And it and it's, it it uh, is it, sad for me to see uh, how people have uh, uh, during the campaign I ran in 2010 how people were demagoguing him and how the dog whistles just continue to be uh, to be blown all throughout this country and I uh, I, I think that uh, I, I I went back recently someone asked me how many vice presidents have actually become president so I got thinking what Harry Truman's didn't so I went back to Harry Harry Truman's. Uh, vice president was, and it was Barkley, for a senator from Kentucky. But as I looked at that map in 1948 when Storm Thurmond ran, all the areas that are red today were all Democrat states except those four states that Storm Thurmond carried as a Dixiecrat. He couldn't couldn't call himself a Republican, but he called himself a Dixiecrat. And so I looked at that map. You look at it today, and it's just totally reversed. Uh, I I, I sense that uh, that in the South with Barack Obama's election. Uh, there were too many of us white Southern Democrats who lost for it just to be coincidental because I had got almost 70% of the vote in 2006 and got it in the low 30% of the vote in 2010. Now you can figure what that, but what you, you, you can put together two plus two and come up with four and understand what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah. My friend actually, he made a map of your race. I think if you want to see that real quick, because it's kind of yeah. pertains to what you've been discussing. Yeah, sure. Hold on one second. Um, yeah. Uh, do you see that? This was uh, your race, Congressman Davis, in 2006. All of this rural blue everywhere. Yeah. I carried every county except one county was Williamson County, which was just a part of the district. But that's right. the only county that I never carried. I carried all 24 counties in 2006 and in 2008. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I did do 2008 as well. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, here it is. Uh, I mean, you can already see some people are starting to get angry at Democrats with a little bit more red. They were they were actually angry. Uh, much angry in 2010, the Tea Party uh, and their efforts. I had I had 10 town hall meetings and I would let uh, I would I'd go in and schedule at least four hours for the meeting. And we had a microphone for the folk. They lined up just like they are getting the shot today. They're lining up uh, 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 to get a test for COVID-19. Or unfortunately, some are lining up, and this is a tragedy for our country, lining up to uh, uh, to get a basket of food now uh, in this country. Something hadn't happened in many, something that we haven't seen in many, many years. But uh, uh, I, those folks would line up and they'd just scream and shout and yell. I sat there for four hours and listened to them. And then I'd take notes on all the things that they wanted. There's usually about five or six comments that they'd want, uh, that they were making. And so I'd answer all, after we finished up, I'd answer all four of those questions and then say, well, I think you then leave. But it didn't, it didn't change them. It didn't, it didn't, they weren't listening. Uh, I had a fellow in, in Kingston, Tennessee, the town hall meeting uh, was, was pretty harsh. And I said, well, you know, I, I try to vote the will of the district. No, you don't, he said. And I said, well, can you tell me a vote that I, can you tell me three votes that I've cast that you disagree with. 
And he looked at me, and there was a reporter from the Knoxville News Center that was there, and he looked at me kind of funny. I said, I could see he was struggling. I said, well, can you uh, just give me two? And uh, he still struggled. Well, can you, and this, this really happened. I said, can you give me one? And he's still struggling. He said, if I was home, I could before I could get my paper. And so I moved on to the next question to somebody else. I'm thinking, fella, someone's telling you how to think. You're not thinking on your own. You're listening to some ideological right-wing nut, nut job, and they're telling you how to think. And that's what happened in 2010. I mean, it just, uh, uh, for instance, we had trackers who followed us throughout, throughout the two years after Obama was elected. We had, we had a Republican paid tracker that followed me on every town hall meeting that I had. They never used any of that information. All they did is said, if you if you want to get rid of, they spent they spent uh, right at five million dollars in that campaign, saying, not saying Davis voted for this or this or this, because I was endorsed by the National Right to Life, endorsed by the NRA, endorsed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, endorsed by the National Association of Manufacturers. I mean, all those things that they thought were interesting to interesting to them, uh, they never looked at that. They just saw on TV one after another, ad after another saying to stop, to, to fire Nancy Pelosi and stop Barack Obama, you've got to vote against Lincoln Davis. And that was the message. And they did it. It's like the guy saying, you know, I don't agree with anything you vote on. You could never mention one thing I'd voted for that he didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think my last question for you in the interview is actually something that ties into your 2010 bid. And I'm just curious, did you at all before your reelection bid see the writing on the wall? Because some of your other rural colleagues in Tennessee who were Democrats holding di- uh, Republican districts at that point, like uh, John Tanner and Bart Gordon, they retired that year. So I'm just curious, what pushed you to run for reelection in 2010? Our polling numbers were unbelievably, you know, as far when I tell you these numbers, they're almost unbelievable. We had 68 percent favorable and 23 percent unfavorable. 68 percent you don't lose a race like that mm-hmm. and, and and going into the election we, we we kept we kept cross-tabbing those who liked me who agreed with what i was voting for who agreed who agreed with my decisions and we got to look at those and, and when, when you went back at, at, on the initial polling we felt sure we we're going to win uh because you don't lose an election like this but as we started cross-tabbing those we were seeing people who agreed with me and gave me a favorable rating that weren't voting for me were undecided and some of those were voting for the Republican candidate that they, that they could not identify, that they didn't know. They were just voting for him because he was Republican. But, but we didn't see that coming up until about the last three or four weeks of the campaign when he started spending all this money saying, you got to stop Pelosi, you got to stop Obama, and that way benefiting Lincoln Davis. And, and I think I think when Gordon and Tanner both decided not to run, I, their polling didn't show the same thing mine did, for instance. Uh, they, were, they, they didn't have, I mean, uh, all the folks around us felt like that, 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 there's no way you lose a selection, but we did. Uh, and I think what happened is that in the August primary for a month and a half prior to that, there were three or four Republicans in each one of those congressional districts in the sixth district and in the eighth district. And they were constantly uh, challenging, not necessarily each other, but, the, but they were challenging uh, the voters to elect them so they could stop Pelosi and so they, so they could fire Pelosi and stop Obama. We saw that on Nashville TV. Uh, we saw it on uh, on Chattanooga TV and Oxford TV. Just constant. It was the same way in West Tennessee. So the water was poisoned by the time the November election came around. I'd already decided that, that it was going to run, so I couldn't pull it out at that point in time. So we, we went ahead and finished the race, but it was uh, 
when, when you go from almost 70%, 33 to 34% in four years, and 58 to 59% two years earlier, I mean, those same voters, why did they change their mind? What happened? Uh, thank you, Mr. Davis, for coming on the interview today. And we know our viewers will appreciate it. So, uh, yes, thank you very much.